0: Namo Aitasa Bhagavatu Varahatu Asama Sambuddhasa Namo Aitasa Bhagavatu Varahatu Asama Sambuddhasa Namo Aitasa Bhagavatu Varahatu Sambuddhasa Budang Damang Well, I think everybody needs to be congratulated. We survived the first day. So it's time for gold stars all the way around. You know, it's, it's um, the first day of a retreat for most everybody. is It's, it's usually a little bit rough going. Um, you know, it's a new place. It, it's unfamiliar. We're settling in. There's usually quite a transition from busyness into stillness. We've got a couple people who've got colds, and a whole variety of people who've got various achies and painies, and you know some people are feeling quite a lot of delight with the stillness, and other people are like, you know, um, a little bit agitated by it, and and uh, it just takes an, it takes a lot of cur- it takes a lot of courage to show up and to do this, so um, it's commendable. It really is genuinely commendable that people are wanting to come and, and have an inclination that there there is a good thing that will come from doing this because there's, there's certainly times where it is not um, altogether clear that that might in fact be the case. <laughs> and it is quite possible that um, people have their own mantra going on in their heads when they come here. What on earth am I doing here?? <laughs> Why did I come <laughs> and it takes a lot of um fortitude and faith and courage and perseverance, as well as maybe even some some um Possibility that one has seen that there, there actually there is a reason for doing this. That actually comes. It, it, it might not always be so easy or so enjoyable or so fun, but that what can happen is, uh, is there can be shifts and changes. Things can change. So um, this is the first time. Well, this is the first time since I've left England that I'm back doing a retreat in a, in a place that's a you know a very clearly established religious institution, and I notice my own mind moving with various different perceptions and feelings and resonances and you know uh, qualities of appreciation as well as concern, and I um, I have a couple of reflections to share, and let's see if I can tie it in again with the. Uh, with uh, um, uh, some of the basic teachings. This evening I was reading, uh, the, this is an anthology of the uh, of, um, bhikkhu bodhis. It's got many different suttas in it. And I read one and it just really um, resonated with me. And I'm not going to read it to you, I'm just going to paraphrase it. Um, this is uh, the heartwood of the spiritual life. So it starts with uh, the Blessed One was living at Rajagaha at, at Vulture's Peak. And um, and he was talking to the monks. So and it was um, he said, you know, you know, some people go forth, and they 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 really see, they recognize it, that you know, I'm a I I, I am the victim, and they use the word victim, of birth, aging, death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, dre- dejection, and despair you know, I am prey to suffering, I experience suffering. Surely there's got to be a way to get to the end of all of this. This whole mass of suffering certainly must be known. And so then one sets out on a a journey. And in the process of setting out on a journey and becoming a, a, a spiritual contemplative, there's often a certain amount of privilege and gain and honor and renown that can happen and if a person is stopping there they think that that's good enough it's like and then as a result of that they start praising themselves and disparaging other people his, his aspiration to find the end of suffering hasn't come to fruition and 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 then the analogy is a little bit like you know if somebody is looking for heartwood and goes into a into a forest and finds a, a beautiful tree that is filled with heartwood but rather than taking any of the heartwood one goes around and collects the twigs and the leaves on the edge of the heartwood on the edge of the tree and then brings them home and says well i'm going to make i'm going to i'm going to make something that requires heartwood out of this and one knows for sure that you know, if you take twigs and you take leaves, it's not gonna be possible to manufacture something that requires heartwood. So if we you know, set forth on a journey and we get stopped where there's privilege or praise or honor or renown, you know, we don't have anything really to, to take, take us to the journey that we had intended to, to go to, which is to understand suffering and the end of suffering. And so, okay, so let's say a person doesn't get stuck in in renown and privilege. You know, they can see that, and then they continue on, and then they make a commitment to be moral, to live a good life. And then as a result of their commitment to being moral, they praise themselves and they disparage other people. And it's a little bit like somebody... And then we still haven't arrived at the goal. We haven't got there yet. It's a little bit like somebody uh, collecting the... um, the, um, the bark on the outside of the tree and trying to make something that requires heartwood out of it. You know, it's just not going to do it. And then if somebody um, continues on the journey and they experience the privilege of, of being a contemplative that's regarded well or have some renown and they have commitment to morality and they experience their mind becoming still and collected, It's a little bit like uh, taking the sapwood, you know? It still is not the hardwood. It's not the stuff that sustains. It still is, is possible for it to get uh, eaten by insects and to be damaged. But if a person is able to make this kind of interest or aspiration to go forward and sees it all through these various different stages, and gets to the place where there's some real genuine insight, clarity, Where's emancipation, where there's liberation, where there isn't any more suffering left. It's like you've arrived. You've gotten where you wanted to go. There's nothing that's going to confuse you or, or take you off your course. You've arrived. And so your life, then, is a manifestation of heartwood. You have become heartwood. Everything you do is an expression of heartwood, and there's nothing where it's no way that it can deteriorate. Now, part of the reason why I am thinking about this is because it was very fascinating to me. On Abhayagiri's website, when they were talking about the history of the forest tradition, so Ajahn Chah was a forest meditation master, and he was one of the people in uh, the last century who brought... um, the kind of essential teachings back into uh, contemporary Thai Buddhism. So, um, and so what this website was describing was in the forest tradition. Since the time of the Buddha, there has been a, a kind of an ebb and flow so what has often happened is, is that there's a teacher and the teacher gets, uh, um, some success and the success being, brings fame and the fame brings wealth and the wealth brings comfort and the comfort brings degeneration and the degeneration then has the whole thing decline. And then from the decline, then there's somebody who usually emerges, who's inspired to pick up the traces of what was there before and to really apply the teachings and to bring forward the essence of of what was intended in in the spiritual aspiration and so that person can go for a while and then after a while that person or that order or that lineage or that tradition flourishes for a while and it becomes famous and and then the fame accrues wealth and the wealth accrues money and the money accrues comfort and the comfort accrues the possibility to degenerate and it goes through the cycle again and again and again and this was on the abayagiri website it was like you know This is what they were saying is the history of the forest tradition, you know, which is very much like what is saying in the sutta, right? And so here we are in a religious institution that is remarkable in terms of the amount of land and buildings and support. And they've got places for a community of nuns, and they've got a place like for for uh, an autistic center, and they've got a nursing home, and they've got facilities for retreats, and they've got uh, they've got the capacity to have service and worship several times a week, on Sundays, several times during the day, and they create this unbelievable resource for the community. So what is it, then, that allows a tradition to maintain its connection, and what is it that makes it possible for it to degenerate? You know, when is it that the, this abundance of resources can be a phenomenal asset uh, to the community? And, and when is it that the, the kind of uh, institutionalization that will naturally follow this level of settledness and stability ends up causing the mind to move away from essence? I mean, to me, these are interesting questions, not just in the abstract, because it's very much parallel to my own personal journey of what I've lived through and what I intend to manifest and create. And so here we are, you know, at the very beginning of a retreat. It's day number one. We don't really need to be considering or worrying so much about institutions. You know, we're just here for five days. And yet there's something about the validity of this question, which is relevant even in five days, Which is that as we are able to get a sense of touch, know and taste for ourselves, what is the essence of these teachings and where is the liberation? Then we are moving in a place where we can take resources that come and use them in a way where they are of benefit. And it's not so likely that we will use them in order to degenerate and to lose contact with what's really important. So even for us, on day one of a retreat, day one, just day one, it's still relevant. It's still relevant that we understand what is the essential element that we are undertaking here. So that our minds can open to that. Our bodies can know that. We can sense it. We can feel it. And so that whatever we do, our life is a life of heartwood. It's the manifestation of the essence. Now, I... Um, perhaps making an assumption, but it's my best guess that the reason why everybody's here is because on some level or another there is a sense of freedom and there also is an appreciation of suffering. And the combination of the two in whatever mixture it has arisen, gives rise to an interest or the possibility that there might be a way to work with what's arising to open up the potential for freedom and to minimize, reduce, and alleviate the experience of suffering. And that's the correct way of thinking. And in fact, it's, uh, it's actually already amazing that we can even think that way, that we actually can cognize or conceptualize or imagine that there is a path out of suffering. There are huge numbers of beings that don't think like that. It never has once occurred to them that that actually is a choice, that that's a possibility, that that's something to cultivate. So even to just consider that, to think that, to imagine that as a possibility, it puts us in a position of unbelievable blessing. So much so, I have no language, really, to describe the depth of that. And yet the reality is, this is that, you know, we have minds and bodies, and they're crabby, and, you know, and we have aches and pains, and they're crabby, and we get colds, and they're snotty, and, you know, and, 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 and we've got minds that, you know, are not always cooperating and it's, and it's hard, you know? So uh, I'm going to digress again and then come back. When I was in uh, England, I took a pilgrimage and went to the Rieti Valley, which is in the center of Italy. And Saint Francis had developed four sanctuaries in the Rieti Valley, and I've always had a strong heart connection with Saint Francis. Um. I don't know why these things are, but there just is. It's a very clear and very strong heart connection. So I was really happy to do pilgrimage in the Rieti Valley um, following the way that he would walk. So most people, when they think of St. Francis, they think of Assisi. And that was certainly a place he spent a lot of time. But the Rieti Valley is also a place where he spent a lot of time. So I was there with another Anagarica, and we were in robes. Buddhist robes with shaven heads and our alms bowls, and we would move, walk into, through, you know, one sanctuary, through the village, and to another sanctuary, and many of these sanctuaries were kind of built around caves, and one cave was up in the mountains, and we stayed in the cave, and we spent a couple nights in the mountains, and we were on alms round, so, you know, we didn't have money with us. We would just go and receive alms in the villages, and one of the things that's really lovely, about a Catholic country, is it's like you know they see a monastic, it's like ah, oh, it's wonderful, you know. And then we were on Saint Francis's pilgrimage, so it made absolutely no difference that we were Buddhist. It's like you know the mentality is really simple. You like Saint Francis, I like Saint Francis, I like you. That's it. That's plenty. It's good enough. I don't need to know any more. So, you know, it was Sunday and all the stores were closed and we were in a village near one of the sanctuaries and we were on alms round. And it looked like a mother and her daughter who were living close to together. So they were in houses nearby. You know, they asked us who we were and what we were. So I speak a little bit of Spanish. So between my tiny bit of broken Spanish, I was able to convey that we were monastics and we were on alms round, and that the food that we were going to eat was only the food that was going to be given to us that day. And they went, you know, their eyes got big as saucers, and they just piled back into their houses, and they came out with like a ton of things, you know? Like it was like unfathomable that we didn't eat dinner. And that we had to make, they had to make sure that we, that we were really well-nourished because it was like, it was just incredible. So it was like, all right, it's just this exquisite heart opening of being in a foreign country, not speaking the language, not being the religion, and, and having this kind of, of, of spontaneous happening. I mean, I'd never expect things like that, but it happens. Yeah. It's just, you know, it's just amazing. And I think one of the things about St. Francis that I really loved was is that he really loved nature. So he liked to practice in nature. And so the Rieti Valley around these sanctuaries had the most exquisite flowers and, you know, there were orchids that were blooming in the hillsides. And, oh, my goodness, it was just beautiful. And there were a couple of nights where we slept out, you know, underneath the trees, underneath the stars. We had, we had, I think, do we have bivvy bags? I think we had bivvy bags so that if it rained or something, we wouldn't get wet. We didn't have tents. We just had, you know, basic minimal kind of stuff, you know. And and so there's this, just this, you know, is the beauty of going in faith and somehow it working out, you know, things working out. And there was one day where, okay, so in Italy it's not like, you know, there's maps and the maps have roads that don't go anywhere and the maps have roads that don't exist and the maps have roads that... I mean, the maps and reality are really a kind of approximation, you know? So we had all of the maps, but that didn't mean a lot because the maps and, I mean, the roads changed or the, anyway, it was all very different. So I remember there was one day where we had been out and, and, uh, walking and you know we had one of these kind of weird things with the maps where we went down a road and it didn't exist, and we had to backtrack, so it was like a deadly day. it was like I don't know seventeen miles of walking or something you know and and we were both operating on fumes, you know we'd had cheese and bread and olives for a meal and 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 just to find the energy to sustain until we could get to a place where we could rest, you know. It was quite, quite something. But in every instance, you know, there's always the sense of just, you know, one step at a time. Just take it one step at a time. How do I come back to the ground? Where is the resistance? Can I release the resistance and just be present with what is? You know, can I just be there with what is? And we found a way. We found a way. So we're in a, Saint, a place of St. Francis. And, you know, there's images of St. Francis and images of Mother Mary. And there's crosses and there's crucifixes and there's nativity scenes. And my my mind is filled with associations and memories and different experiences that I've had. And, and bringing all of these threads together about how is it... That what we do here, or how is it that the way we are motivated to practice somehow is connecting the various different pieces of this inquiry, of this exploration. So when we look at what happened with the Buddha and his life, you know, the Buddha was born as a prince, you know, he had a lot of wealth, he had... Four different palaces to live in different places, in different seasons. You know, it was a maximum opportunity for comfort and for job security. You know, he was he was kind of lined up to be in, in, in the next in line for the king, and the prophecies were is that if he was going to follow that way. He was going to be a world-turning monarch. It wasn't just he was going to be a, a king of a municipality. He was going to be a really big deal dude of a king. But something happened. A number of things happened. And he really got it that the pleasure, the privilege, the comfort, the family, the security did not touch the basic questions that he wanted to answer. You know, where is it that you find an end to old age, sickness and death? Where is it that there is something that lasts beyond that? So he could see that in his own personal experience, everything that he had, his intelligence, his charisma, his loving family, the opportunities, the comfort, the music, the entertainment, the health, his talent, none of them, none of them, was any match for coming to the end of old age, sickness, and death. None of them was going to be something that would sustain beyond. And he couldn't help himself, he couldn't help his family, he had nothing in all of his talents that was going to be an answer to these very basic questions that all of us have to deal with. So he left, he left the comfort, he left the family, he left the privilege, he left the status, he left his toys, and he went out on a journey. And there's something about that which is very archetypical. You know, we have to leave behind what is familiar to us in order to explore and uncover something that's new. And so, you know, we've come here. This is, none of us live here. You know, this is not our, our pad, our place. We have to get to used to the place, how it works, how it functions, and where everything is. And, you know, for some it's too hot, for others it's too cold. And, you know, it's not the same as our own space that we have the ability to regulate and to, and, to, and to have it be the way we like. And, you know, as is any seeker, they do the best that they can. So, so what he was interested in doing was going to the best teachers of the time. And the, and the best teachers of the time were masters of concentration. And, and so their mind was able to absorb into subtle levels of what it is, what is consciousness, what's the nature of consciousness absolutely sublimely blissful experiences but when you come out of them your knees still ache you still miss your family you still get hungry at breakfast time all the kind of normal things that we experience the wanting and the not wanting and the confusions and the suffering are not uprooted by that pleasure of concentrating the mind into the deepest ways that it can, knowing the deepest kinds of happiness that it's possible to know from that is actually still conditioned. It's dependent on the concentration. And so he came out of that thinking, yeah, this is great, but this is not the answer to my question. This does not answer what's beyond old age, sickness, and death. It doesn't touch it. It gives me a holiday from having to deal with the problem. But it doesn't actually answer it. So he continued on his journey and his exploration. And, you know, in that day, they had this belief that the body was the source of the problem. And so if you subdued the body, then you subdued the problem. And so they would do stuff that for us would make our blood curdle because it was just like, you've got to be joking. <laughs> but they weren't joking. They were serious. They were willing to do anything. You know, and so there's this, there's a picture, an image of the Buddha uh, after he'd been, you know, eating a, a spoonful of rice, and then a, a half a spoonful of rice, and then a grain of rice for a very prolonged period of time. And, He's just all skin and bones, and you can see his spine from his stomach. And so, you know, and so he had the insight, you know, the only thing this is doing is making me physically weak. It's not helping. So he was a radical thinker in the sense that he was willing to go into the ideas of the day, explore them, feel them from the inside, and come to his own conclusions. And his own conclusions, no, this is not the way. So he was practicing with others, and he left to to do what he needed to do was to nourish himself, you know, and they thought he was a total washout, a write-off, a wimp, you know. So they had made a kind of a pact between themselves not to speak to him if he came back because he was a washout, a wimp. And he went off on his own journey, had his own insights, and then his own mind opened up. And then he was thinking, the Buddha, after his mind opened up, he thought, well, you know, who can, I, who can I teach? This stuff is so subtle. And people are so committed to their desire. They are so committed to their ill will. They are so committed to their conceit. You know, how am I going to share this? Who is interested? People want to have fun. They don't want to wake up. So he thought and he thought his first two teachers that they had already passed on and so then he went and he went went back to these other these these other monks that he'd been practicing with. And they had decided, you know, they're not going to pay any attention to him. But he came back luminous. He came back peaceful. He came back radiant. And in spite of themselves, they made a seat for him and they listened to what he had to say. And so then he started to talk and he said, you know, it's a middle path. It's not about indulging in sensuality, but neither is it about harming ourselves through mortification. It's a middle path. And then he went on to elucidate the noble truths and talked about that there is suffering. It's not just a bad idea or an, a, a Facebook post, it's actually a reality that there is suffering in this world. We experience it in our bodies, it, they hurt. We experience it in our hearts, we ache. We experience it when we see the things that we love change, diminish. We see it when we experience things that we really do not want, that we don't agree with, that we have no respect for, that come close to us, that we have to deal with. Now, I'm going to sidestep for a moment and then come back into the Four Noble Truths story. One of the things that happens in a postmodern world, because we do have bodies that suffer and we do get sick and we see other people get sick and it's heartbreaking. We see houses burned down and fires and we see people dying in what seems like completely tragic, absolutely unthinkable circumstances. And it hurts to try and wrap our minds around it. One of the things that happens in our world is that we experience suffering as insufficiency. We experience our body aching as being something fundamentally wrong with me. We experience sickness in somebody else as somehow something is wrong with me, that I'm experiencing this. We experience the sadnesses that we have. We experience the losses that we feel. We experience the the sorrows that we experience as insufficiently, as something that there is fundamentally wrong with me because I am feeling this. So it solidifies a sense of unworthiness it solidifies a lack of self-esteem it solidifies a sense of somehow being not okay inadequate not belonging the weird one in the group I'm the only weird one in the group. Everyone else is normal and I'm the weird one. I don't know if any of you have ever felt that way. (laughs) And it's because there's something fundamentally wrong with me that I feel that way. Now this is a very interesting thing because on one hand what is needed is to wake up to realize that this sense of insufficiency is a noble truth that has to be realized not a personal problem to solidify around that this is actually endemic in the world that it isn't adequate that that is a truth And then it goes skittily wampus that we have identified with it, taken it to be an, a validation of unworthiness that we have experienced from someplace else, and use this noble truth to verify, solidify, validate an unworthiness, a lack of self-esteem, a lack of self-belonging into a larger sphere. And that is a recipe for suffering. Where it is tricky is that sometimes the unworthiness that we feel, sometimes the lack of self-esteem that we feel, sometimes the sense of shame that we have internalized or the criticism of our parents' voice that we heard from we were time we were knee-high to a grasshopper requires a particular kind of observation rather than just the noble truths of seeing that this is suffering. And this is also a larger conversation about how it is when we have grown up in circumstances where there wasn't the kind of holding or caring or mirroring that we needed, that developmentally, the result was we internalized a sense of shame or inadequacy and then used the world around us forever after to justify, to verify, to validify that formation that happened when we were very young so what I am doing now is I am mixing the observation that comes from the Noble Truths, which is talking about not solidifying an aspect of oneself and combining it with a developmental psycho- psychoanalytic look at how we got there in the first place. And my experience, for whatever it's worth, is is that I've had to do both. I couldn't only look at things in terms of their inherent nature as being unsatisfactory in order to address where the sense of unworthiness actually got embedded in my system in the first place. When we're looking at it from what the Buddha's perspective was, what the Buddha said is there is suffering and there is a cause for suffering. And he did not place the cause outside. He placed the cause as wanting things to be different. He placed the cause in wanting our mind states to be different, wanting our body to be different, wanting the temperature to be different, wanting the food to be different, not wanting to have to wait at breakfast when I'm starving. And so when a person is able to bring attention exactly where there is wanting and not wanting, then that is exactly where the cessation of suffering takes place. It doesn't come because there's a magic wand and the world goes voop voop and everything we want we get and everything we don't want goes away. It comes because we fundamentally start relating to the world in a different way. But when we look at it from the developmental perspective, of that some of the pain that we're having to navigate, the beliefs that we're having to navigate, the mind states that we're having to navigate, the emotional turbulences that we're having to navigate, is because of there wasn't enough of what we needed at a time when we were vulnerable and we didn't have the capacity to take care of ourselves. Somebody who's tiny doesn't have the ability to figure it all out for themselves. And so in these situations, it isn't just a question of wanting to not feel something. It's a question of bringing forth what is needed when one didn't get it. And this takes actually an enormous amount of sophistication to know the difference between when it's suitable to observe something and when it is important to interact and bring forward the qualities that never were given when they were needed. And yet for me, this has been a phenomenally liberating and golden key. Tremendously liberating. Because then I can bring the right thing in the right place. And what had happened for me, as happens for many people, is, is that we come to meditation with this enormous enthusiasm that it is going to be the magic wand that's going to go voop-voop. And that all we need to do is to learn how to meditate the best, the right, the well way, and every problem we have is going to go voop-voop. And a lot of problems go voop-voop. And some don't so it takes the sophistication and the willingness and the interest to begin to say well maybe the problem is not that I'm not meditating correctly and maybe the problem isn't that the meditation is not good enough maybe the problem is is that what I'm dealing with is actually not addressed through meditation <laughs> that took 20 years for me to work this out 20 years 20 years of meditating 20 years where I felt that the only thing in the world that I wanted more than anything else was to be free from suffering and I was prepared to do anything to make that happen So the Buddha talked about suffering, and he talked about the cause of suffering, and he talked about the end of suffering. He talked about the path leading to the end of suffering. A path that's supported by right view, where we have an understanding of things, that makes sense of our world in a way that allows us to work with what's arising. Right conviction, where we bring forward an effort, an attitude, a a, a willingness to engage. The effort to show up, the effort to do what's needed. The effort to refrain from doing the things that that hurt, that harm, that are not helpful. To stop the slandering, to stop the criticism, to stop berating oneself or criticizing oneself. To find ways of living in the world, of earning a living, that doesn't cause more confusion for oneself or for others. To learn how to still the mind, to focus the mind, to concentrate so that we can see what's going on, that our minds are not just awash in a soup of, of distraction and, and confusion and you can't figure out what's going on. And, and the mindfulness of being willing to know what's happening in the present moment. So let me weave this back around to where I started. How is it that institutions don't degenerate? How is it that the practice doesn't degenerate? How is it that we can practice in a way where we know our life is an embodiment of the heartwood that we seek, the authenticity, the honesty, the congruence that we seek. The way to do that is to touch that here, to know what authenticity is, to know what honesty is, to know what congruence is, to know what the essence is, Because the shape is constantly shifting, and when we know what the essence is, we can bring back the fundamental principles in the changing forms as our life unfolds. When we see clearly beyond a shadow of a doubt, when we've tasted mango, we don't need to listen to what somebody else describes a mango tastes like. It's not that we have a magic wand where all of a sudden the things that we want are the only things that we experience and the things that we don't want all of a sudden disappear. What shifts is, is that we have a frame of reference that we're relating to it from, and an understanding that means that we don't get so confused by what it is that we're experiencing. And it takes a while for that understanding to stabilize where it is in fact unshakable. And when it's unshakable, it's unshakable. So we each have our own lives and our own challenges and our own joys and our own successes. Our own little awakenings, our own big awakenings. Our tears of joy and our tears of sadness. Little bit by little bit. An unfolding happens through practice, through presence, through clarity, emerging about the difference between what is our mind and what are the objects of our mind. What is our essence? And what are the conditioned things that arise depending on other conditions? We know our essence. We're not confused by the things we have to experience. When not confused, we can respond with skillfulness, with appropriateness, with kindness, with compassion. When we respond with appropriateness, with kindness, with compassion, with skillfulness, with wisdom, our lives are the manifestation of what we value. But I don't know of a magic wand other than showing up and doing the work. Where the tire meets the road, being with the rub, softening through the resistance, finding courage to bring with the spacing out, continuing to stay present when you want to run. Softly, gently, slowly, it starts to shift. Clarity emerges, joy emerges, peace emerges, gentleness emerges. So take heart, it's not trivial what we're doing here. And we're in a community of people who have similar value similar interest, similar aspiration. One step at a time. One teacup at a time. One bubble of joy at a time, one tear at a time. we walk the path. So I'd like to offer these words for reflection, to consider. And again, as I said in the beginning, to take what resonates, contemplate it, use it, Know it because when you listen inwardly from inside of your own body, you can feel opening and relaxing and releasing. You can feel your breath deepening, softening, quieting. You can know that it's truth. And if I speak in ways that don't resonate, leave it. Sometimes when it feels uncomfortable, it might be worth exploring further just to see whether the uncomfortableness is really a lack of resonance or an exquisitely raw resonance. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.